This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Good afternoon. Can we ask everybody to take your seats, please? Thank you. Um, I'm Colin von Seil. I'm going to introduce our next speaker, um, Francois Marais. He's here to um, present on can the discrimination in risk underwriting in, life insurance in, in the life insurance industry be ethically justified? So uh, if that's not the session you wanted to attend, you still have some time to run out. Um, otherwise, um, please allow me to um, welcome our next speaker. Uh, Francois joined Sunlam in 1975, qualified in 1980. And um, he's, a, he's a career Sunlam man. He did leave for a short while during his career to do a consulting stint. He said it was a bit of a middle age, a, a, a midlife crisis, I mean. And, um, but then he returned back to Sunlam again. Um, he's now retired. He's a father of three, happily married. And um, he keeps himself busy with Irish terriers, koi, and woodwork. And most importantly, um, with some studies. Um, this year he completed his master's in applied ethics in um, the very topic that he'll be presenting on today. So with that, um, please allow me to welcome Francois Marais. Thank you. Well, good afternoon, everybody. This is really a, an intimidating venue. It's, <laughs> it's huge. Um, Discrimination has actually become an ugly word in our society. When people almost by definition see discrimination as unfair discrimination against somebody, either on basis of sex or race or age or whatever. Uh, but the, the neutral meaning of discrimination is just to differentiate. And if you don't differentiate, if you don't discriminate correctly, you can actually be indiscriminate. Um, but we have an act in South Africa called the, let's get, to get the long name right, the Promotion of Equality and the Prevention of Unfair Discrimination Act of the year 2000. And um, what's interesting to note is that all the factors that we discriminate on in underwriting, with the exception of smoking, uh, are on the red list of that act. And um, in terms of the act, if somebody complains uh, against something that they see as unfair discrimination, then the respondent has got to prove that the discrimination is in fact not unfair and that it serves a legitimate purpose. Um, and uh, that's what we are looking at now. If somebody should um, lay a complaint against an insurance company or against the insurance industry about um, our discrimination in our underwriting, can we actually prove that that is fair? Um, okay, here we are. So the, um, I, can't read, <laughs> I can't read that, I'll have to look around. Uh, the um, uh, agenda is short. We'll first look at the insurance side of the things, and, and this you should all know very well. Um, and look at the way and the extent to which you discriminate. Then we'll review the normative ethics theory of moral contractualism, which will be new to 
practically all of you, I suppose. And then we'll bring the ethics and the insurance together in the end and see what, what, in, what conclusions we can uh, get to. So, um, is the discrimination we, that we do in underwriting, is it actually unfair? Now, our typical actuarial answer to that will be, well, it's actuarial equity. Uh, everybody should pay according to their risk. The high risk should pay more and the low risk should pay less, and uh, that is fair. Uh, and then we will also justify the correctness, first uh, argue that it's fair, and then we will justify the correctness of the um, discrimination on the grounds of our statistical evidence. Um, there we are. Could have and then we've got the economic justification on the other hand that says, well, we need it for the uh, financial uh, profitability of the insurance industry. Uh, and on a company level, that's true. If a specific company does not discriminate, does not give uh, lower rates for non-smokers, it will be uh, selected against and he won't be profitable. He won't be able to survive. Uh, on, a company on, a, on an industry level, the um, argument that the, the, the industry actually needs this for survival, that without discrimination we cannot have an industry, is a bit overrated. Uh, it is true for age. But for any of the other uh, underwriting factors, it's not really true. The industry survived for 150 years uh, without with only underwriting on the basis of age. Um, so, the I think it's, if, you, if you look at the extent of the discrimination, you'll see that to actually justify that <laughs> can be quite difficult. Uh, now, even, most, even actuaries, most actuaries will be surprised I was when I, when I wrote the thesis. Um, if we look at a premium of um, 100 rand, we'll buy uh, about 20,000 rand worth of life cover for an uh, old, um, low-income uh, male smoker. Um, it will typically be an uneducated uh, person. Uh, then for a, for a, a, a mid-aged, <laughs> mid-life uh, male smoker, uh, slightly, bald, slightly balding and, and, and expanding waist, typical, uh, he can get 150,000 rand of cover for the same 100 rand premium. That's seven times more than the guy at the top. And then if you go to the next category, a young professional female non-smoker, almost add beautiful there, uh, <laughs> she can get a million rand of cover, which is again seven times more than the, mid, than the midlife male, and which is 50 times more than the, than the uh, poor old man. And this is really serious discrimination. And it actually goes against um, the second justice principle of the philosopher John Rawls, who says that if you do, uh, if, um, if there is discrimination uh, on the, of distinction in, in the provision of social goods uh, in a society, then it must be so as to favor or to benefit the least favored. And this is. It's totally the opposite way around. So um, let us just look at uh, insurance is not like any other uh, commodity or any other product. It's really a unique product 
you can't just buy in and like buying a car, say pick a, pick a car and pay. Uh, you've got to be accepted to buy insurance. Uh, now, the issues of um, risk pooling and um, cross subsidies and adverse selection, uh, we'll come to those later on again, uh, work that in. But uh, the, the, the question of, of information. Um, uh, uh, symmetry or dissymmetry between buyer and seller is the opposite, opposite way around in, in insurance. Typical, uh, with a typical uh, business, the uh, dictum is caveat emptor, let the buyer beware, because the, uh, the seller knows more about the product than the buyer. Typically, if, if you buy a, a second-hand car, <laughs> you don't know about the, about the uh, problems that, that there's in the gearbox. But uh, so, and you must you must be beware. Whereas in, in insurance, it's the other way around. Here, the the, the the buyer has got more information about his own uh, health situation, and uh, here the the dictum is um, utmost good faith. In in the underwriting process, you must disclose uh, your all your health issues to the to the seller who does not who does not know about that. Uh, so the information symmetry is the other way around. And then on the issue of, of uh, um, social good, um, this insurance is not just a normal commodity. And I believe that a basic level of insurance, a very basic level, say um, funeral cover type level, is really a, a primary social good. And we should regard it as a primary social good and, and, and that means actually society as a whole should make sure that this is available to everybody. And we really need the National Social Security Fund, the NSSF, which has been carry, gathering dust for well, 15 years now. Uh, we really need that because this is a primary uh, social good. Uh, our commercial insurance is not really a primary. It would be a non-primary social good. It's not a plain commodity. It does have a specific... Uh, social value, uh, and as such, uh, access to it can be important. So now if we look at insurance and the underwriting of insurance, you basically have two approaches to risk pooling. Um, the one needing underwriting, and the other one does not needing underwriting. Uh, and you must understand both to, to be able to, to, to uh, give comment on it. Now, on, the, on the one hand, We've got uh, social um, solidarity uh, for social security, uh, and here there's no underwriting. There is um, a huge cross-subsidy. All the, the, uh, the young and healthy and, and rich subsidize the old and poor and sick um, on, the, um, uh, on the other end of the scale. Uh, but, but it's okay, because membership is compulsory. Everybody's got to belong to this. Uh, you can't opt out, and, and you may be subsidizing uh, the older guys now, but eventually you'll be subsidized by the younger guys following, uh, following after you. Uh, and everybody has the same amount of cover. Uh, and here, the uh, fairness um, principle is equality, not equity. We're all equal. But now if you come to uh, mutual insurance, um, uh, commercial insurance, which is where the risk pooling is in the, on the basis of, of mutuality, then um, this is voluntary. Um, 
you, you don't have to uh, belong to the scheme, and you can choose how much cover you want. You can have uh, 10,000 or you can have 10 million, and certainly uh, you can't have uh, equality here. You have to underwrite because we won't be, nobody would like to uh, cross-subsidize somebody with a million or 10 million life cover. He must pay for his own uh, risk. And here, the uh, full underwriting is absolutely essential. Um, and uh, the, the fairness uh, is based on uh, equality, on, on equity and not equality. So, um, if we, if we look at the underwriting criteria that, that, that uh, we've used, uh, and, I mean, underwriting has been um, uh, standard practice in the insurance industry for um, established practice for many decades, and uh, the underwriting, but we get two uh, uh, kinds of underwriting criteria. First of all, there's the general underwriting criteria, which applies to everybody. We all categorized uh, uh, by uh, your age, your sex, uh, smoking habit, and your socioeconomic class. Uh, and um, this applies across the board. So uh, according to those criteria, you then allocate it to, to a specific risk group, and you get the standard rate for that risk group. Uh, then on top of that, you can have the individual criteria of um, health and uh, dangerous activities, part-time activities, uh, and job, and so on. We not, they can also be unfair, <laughs> and if you, but we, I didn't consider them at all. Uh, I only looked at the general um, criteria affecting everybody, because uh, this is less than, definitely less than 10% of the population, but about 5% of applicants that are actually affected by the individual criteria. So, um, the history of the underwriting criteria is actually quite uh, interesting. Um, most of you under age 40, seems to be most, most of you anyway, uh, will, will not know a time where we didn't have all these, all four of these underwriting criteria in insurance. I mean, you uh, grew up with them. Uh, you may be surprised to, to know that when I joined the industry, uh, we only had um, we only had age and and and, and sex uh, as underwriting criteria, and the others uh, were added and followed afterwards. And I was uh, can't claim responsibility, but <laughs> I was involved in some of it. Uh, so uh, if if we if we look at age, that was the main underwriting or the only underwriting criteria from when insurance started in the 1800s till about 1950. Um, then, in, uh, in the early 1960s, sex was added uh, as an um, underwriting criteria. Uh, and, um, typical, and that's when, when I joined the industry, it was still a three-year age uh, deduction for, for male applicants, three years less than, the, than male. And that typically be about uh, the 5% difference per age, it would be about a 15% discount for females. And that was then uh, increased eventually to um, a five-year discount in the 80s, and in the two, in the, uh, by the year 2000, it was a seven-year discount, which is equivalent to about a 35% uh, discount. 
Now, this is typical. This is a typical way of um, how a new um, underwriting factor is introduced. You have the suspicion that there may be there's a group that has lighter mortality, and, and then you give them a small discount. Before you don't really know and you can't really quantify it, but then you start because you now differentiate. You start building up the statistics of the two different groups, and then in time you see. But okay, I was quite conservative. I can give more and more discount. Um, and uh, that's how it goes. Then, if you look at uh, smoking status, uh, this was introduced in the uh, also in the, in the 1980s. <laughs> now, here I was I can specifically remember um, at Sunlam, we decided we're going to lead the way. We're going to be innovative, and we're going to introduce smoker non-smoker discount. And then uh, some bright spark said, and we were far down. Down the road of implementation, said, but what about our our biggest single pension fund client, Rembrandt? <laughs> and uh, and the whole the whole uh, project was scanned right right there, and we waited for for I think it was Liberty and Mutual to to do to be first, and then we softly followed suit. <laughs> uh, but then the socioeconomic. Uh, Socioeconomic discount, uh, or dis not discount, underwriting, I think that is where we as a, as a, as a country, uh, as an in insurance industry in, in South Africa, is almost unique and, and we tend to lead the way. Uh, we have this very sophisticated insurance industry and we've got this very uh, heterogeneous population. Uh, and um, it, we, we started off with a I remember that well. We started off calling them, we've got your normal rates, and then we had the preferential rates, about a 25% discount for preferential rates. And that would typically be somebody with a, with a university degree or whatever, and, and smokers. They also included in that, in that first distinction. And then by the 1990s, uh, we had a three-tier three uh, normal rate, uh, preferential rate, and super rates. And the super rates were about 35% uh, cheaper than the normal rates. So slowly developing. If you look at, at where we are now, um, age, um, it's still the same. Uh, and uh, if you look, it's about 5% per, per, per each increment of age. But if you look from age 20 to age 60, it's, it's a huge difference. Um, the sex in, 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 uh, difference has increased to about 50%, uh, 50% uh, more uh, um, cover for, uh, for a female than for a male, which is now equal to about a 10% discount. And we don't have a, uh, uh, an age discount anymore. We have sophisticated enough to have separate rates nowadays. Um, smoking status, about 100% more. And, and so you can see it's... Uh, 50% is not such, such a, a significant discount. 100% is, is double that, which the typical smoker rates are, uh, or the non-smoker gets about 100% more cover than the smoker. And then if you look at the socioeconomic class, uh, and that is really uh, by far the most significant uh, discount or, or differentiation. And if you, if you take the, whoops, sorry. Where's the? Laser. There we are. Uh, if you take the, the, the cheapest last one, it's the guy with, with no metric. 
uh, then as soon as you get matric and a little bit of a high income, you get 100% uh, more cover for the same premium. And uh, if you have a three-year diploma and still a high income, 200% more cover and so on. Uh, and, and typically, uh, most companies or many companies have a five-year uh, dis dis distinction there. And if you then um, put that all together and you take the, the age difference and the sex difference and the smoking difference and the socioeconomic class, that in total, if you multiply all this together, it will give you that 50 times differentiation between the, the beautiful young girl and the poor old man. Um, so um, that is the part that, that you're all basically fam familiar with. Uh, maybe you didn't realize the, the quite big the extent it was. Um, now you come to the, uh, the, the, the second part is the, the ethics lecture. And this, this is where you must now make like the, like the, um, the blonde, who is sort of staring intently at the, at the Oros bottle. And then somebody asked her, why are you so staring so intently at the Oros bottle? And she said, no, it says here on the label, concentrate. <laughs> so um, this is the part where you must now concentrate. But I'll, 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 take, it, I'll take it slow. Um, now, the, the normative theory of moral contractualism that I've used to, as a lens to look at this problem is uh, a very, very new uh, theory. Uh, it's actually just sort of come of age, about 21 years old since the big book was written. Um, and compared to the other normative ethics theories, if you look at um, uh, virtue ethics, I mean, that comes, that's two and a half thousand years old. That's from, from the days of Plato. Uh, if you look at deontology, it's 250 years old. And if you look at um, utilitarianism, that's about 150 years old. So this is brand new. Uh, no wrinkles, uh, young. Um, and it was developed uh, by a Harvard professor called Tom Scanlon. Um, and in his seminal book, What We Owe to Each Other, he set out his theory in, in detail. Um, and uh, this has been held as uh, one of the most important books on moral philosophy in the 20th century, a magisterial book that will influence the direction of ethics for years to come, and uh, uh, equaling uh, theories such as utilitarianism and uh, deontology. So, uh, Scanlon didn't agree uh, with the main um, ethical theory of utilitarianism, where the moral value of an act is only judged by its consequences. And utilitarianism is, says that it must increase, an act is good if it increases the total well-being of the population. And uh, he didn't agree with that, and then he defined what is um, uh, the whole moral contractualism uh, centered around this definition of his, of the definition of moral wrongness. Uh, and this is been called the most famous sentence in the late 20th century moral philosophy, and here it is. This is the concentrate part. I'll read it while you concentrate. Uh, an act is wrong 
if its performance under the circumstances would be dis disallowed by any set of principles for the general regulation of behavior, which, to which no one could reasonably reject as a basis for informed, unforced general agreement. <laughs> now that sentence is the uh, contractual equivalent of uh, the categorical imperative of Immanuel Kant in deontology and of the greatest happiness principle of John Mills in, in, in utilitarianism. Uh, but I'll give you the diluted version of that, uh, the light version. An act is wrong if it can be disallowed by any principle that no one could reasonably reject. And, and that uh, we can all more easily understand. Um, so uh, he defines when an act is wrong, uh, and, and the, 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 the positive uh, statement of that is you can really say that an act is right if you can supply sufficient reasons to justify it, if you can justify your actions. So uh, uh, Scanlon wrote this thick book, 500 pages, uh, and uh, core uh, to the theory, the uh, three notions, and, and I mean this is now the, the short summary, this is like, <laughs> like the uh, guy who read War and Peace, and then they asked him, they asked for, somebody said, what is, what is this about? And he said, it's about Russia. So this is now the short summary of the book, the, the three notions, uh, justifiability, uh, Scanlon argues that uh, we want to be able, the, the main motive for us, want to, people wanting to do the right thing, wanting to do good, is that we want to be able to justify our actions to other people. Uh, and then to be able to do that, the second notion is the notion of reason. To justify your actions, you must be able to give adequate reason uh, for that, uh, sufficient adequate reasons. And then if you, on, on, a, on a specific issue, if you've got a, a, a body of reasons, um, then you, you actually get a principle that is a, a general conclusion based on sufficient reasons to def that could defeat any reasonable objection. So Scanlon says you must uh, define principles and then on this basis and then live by these principles. And you can approach any problem uh, in this way. So. Uh, the, the, the beauty and the strength of contractualism is it's got this the single um, definition of um, moral wrongness. An act is wrong if it would be disallowed by any principle no one could reasonably reject. But it hasn't got, it, it can accommodate a number of moral notions. Uh, it can actually accommodate the um, uh, overall well-being, the happiness principle of uh, utilitarianism. It can accommodate the duty and uh, responsibility and respect for the individual of uh, deontology and uh, other moral reasons. So it's, it's actually a very useful tool. I found it a very useful tool. Um, and the challenge in this study was to, uh, was to be able to, to define principles of insurance underwriting that no one could reasonably reject. So that wasn't too hard, was it? <laughs> that, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's end of the uh, ethics lecture. Uh, now we're on the, on the third part of the, um, of the uh, agenda. 
uh, now to apply the theory to the problem. We must first um, look at the, the general um, underwriting, or underwriting in general. Can we justify making a distinction at, at all, making a, uh, a discriminate, before we look at the specific uh, features of the discrimination? So um, the, the fair lottery principle was my uh, attempt. Uh, in a lottery where each ticket has an equal chance to win, all tickets should cost the same. It would be unfair to charge different prices for different tickets. I mean, that's, that is something that nobody could, can reject. That is it's a good reason. Uh, so if, you, if, I, if I have 10 tickets and you have one ticket in the lottery, then I should, should have paid 10 times more for my 10 tickets. Now, the same in, in the, if it's in the, the death claim sweepstakes. <laughs> if I have 10 tickets against your one ticket, then I must pay 10, 10 times more for my for my policy of my death risk than you with a much lower risk. Um, so uh, the underlying assumption there, however, is that we actually know how many tickets each one holds. If you know exactly how many tickets each one holds, then, then that is fair to, to do so. Um, the, um, the, the problem is uh, in, in underwriting, in life insurance, we don't exactly know how much tickets each one holds. We don't exactly know what, exactly what your risk is. So we can justify the general principle of underwriting, but now we must look at, at the different underwriting uh, factors. Um, and the problem is that uh, actuarial um, science is not an exact science, actuarial risk writing and, and, and determining the uh, um, uh, the, the risk of each person. You, we, we don't know. We don't know it exactly. But what we do know is that if you just look at, if we, if we just differentiate by age, and you've got all the 40 years old together as a group there, then we know now, definitely, and we've got evidence, that uh, if we would if we subdivide them by sex and by, um, by smoking habit, then we'd get a, a much clearer and much more correct picture. We'll, get, we'll improve the level of underwriting. We'll improve the correctness of the underwriting. So adding new um, uh, underwriting factors is a good thing. We should be doing that, and we should be refining it uh, as far as we can. Um, so uh, w now we're at the point where we say, OK, these underwriting factors that we are actually using, how, um, how can we justify them? Uh, and this is where I <laughs> uh, define this uh, very original name, the fair discrimination principle. And uh, I say here that an, an underwriting factor is justifiable, I've got three conditions, if it's uh, strong and reliable statistical evidence, uh, if there's reasonable causal explanation, and if there's unambiguous allocation to a risk group. Now, clearly, each one of their own, I think you will agree, is a necessary condition for fairness. If, if, you, if a criteria does not meet that, that condition, uh, it cannot be fair. So it's a necessary condition. I think what is slightly more um, uh, controversial in, in, in what, I, what I propose 
is that if you take these three, to, these three conditions together, you, you get what I would see, see as a sufficient condition for fairness as well. And uh, I'll be quite happy to accommodate suggestions for further um, um, criteria to be added there if you say this is not sufficient. But I think uh, if we, uh, and, and these, this is the, the definition or the principle that I've used to look at, at, the, at the underwriting factors. Um, so what we're going to do now is we're going to take each of these criteria, uh, look at it briefly, and then see how our uh, age, sex, um, smoking, and uh, socioeconomic class uh, fare against these uh, criteria. So first of all, you need strong and reliable evidence. Strong evidence means there must be a, a significant difference. I mean, a 5% difference is not significant, it's not strong enough. 100% difference or a 200% difference, that is significant, strong uh, uh, evidence. And then it must be reliable uh, evidence. And for reliable evidence, you need adequate statistical evidence. You need uh, a believable uh, investigation. So if you look at age, I mean, this, is the, this is the original one. This is the one that we must be able to justify as fair, otherwise we don't have an industry. Uh, and if you look at the statistical evidence that we have there, it is huge. The, uh, I think the, the, the latest, well, we've got the uh, CMI, uh, Continuous Mortality Investigation uh, Subcommittee, and they do an investigation every five to ten years. I think the latest one is vastly overdue. Is that not? Uh, I, I believe that uh, maybe there's somebody in the committee, that I believe there's been some problems with it, uh, but the, the the last official one uh, was based on 15 million policy years. This is the stats provided by all of us together, the whole industry, uh, pooling our, uh, our stats, and uh, 80,000 uh, deaths. This is, <laughs> this is serious evidence. Uh, so I think we can say that we have strong and reliable evidence. Um, if you look at, at six, uh, again, that whole population can be divided into male and female, and about 40% female, 60% uh, male, um, and we've got, just got this binary, binary distinction, male and female. We're not into the, into the gender distinctions here. Um, so uh, that means we've got um, 9 million uh, male policy lives and 6 million female policy lives, which is against strong evidence. And the, the difference of 50% in, in mortality is, 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 um, is sufficient uh, enough to make it uh, worthwhile. Then if you look at the smokers, now the stats get uh, getting slightly thinner, but you've got 3% male smokers and 15% female smokers, which will still give you about a million female smokers. Can you believe that? Imagine a million ladies smoking. Um, but, uh, and, and, and so it, it's still strong evidence. It's um, uh, uh, strong and reliable evidence, I, I think. And, and the difference is here, the difference is up to, depending on the age, uh, as, it, as you get older, the, the effect is, is larger. Um, so strong and reliable evidence. And then the socioeconomic class, this is where it starts getting a bit dicey, but it still passes this test. Uh, we couldn't use about half, half of the data we couldn't use, or it's not, 
is not used in the CMI uh, because it's unspecified. So, and, and then it's subdivided into, uh, into four different classes. Uh, so the, the, the stats is a slightly less per class, but the evidence is extremely uh, strong. Strong evidence of big difference in mortality based on, the, on, the, uh, on these uh, groupings. So strong and reliable evidence, no problem there. Uh, the next criteria is you must have um, a reasonable causal explanation for the difference. Um, I mean, all uh, or most um, scientific research is based on, on gathering data and making and getting correlation between variables and drawing conclusions from, from, from such uh, correlation. But the, uh, the saying that uh, correlation is not causation, that correlation does not prove causation. So you can't, because there's a correlation, say this proves whatever is, is correlated with that. <laughs> the, uh, the, I believe there's a correlation between the number of births in Norway and the number of storks in summer there. And uh, <laughs> I mean, that doesn't prove the myth. Um, it, it might, the, the, the actual reason may be just the long winters that they have there, something like that. So um, you, you, need to, you need to provide strong and, and reasonable uh, um, uh, causal explanation. So if you look at, at age, I mean, <laughs> there's, there's no problem. I mean, if you, if you get older, like we all do, some of us more than others, uh, I mean, it's, it's like an old car. The, the spares that start, start getting problems and they have to be replaced and, and later on you can't even get replacements for them. When we, there's a very direct uh, causal relationship between age and, and mortality. Um, between sex and mortality, um, it's wonderful even at, at, at the uh, at the, I mean, this is not really a causal explanation, this is just a fact, that uh, uh, a newborn, in the, in the first year, first year of life, the male mortality is about 25% higher than female mortality. I don't think they know why, but it's a fact. But then as we grow older, uh, we get a better explanation for the, uh, explanations for the male mortality. It's basically stupidity. Um, <laughs> We, we, we work harder, we stress more, we smoke more, we drink more, um, and uh, uh, drinking leads to road accidents, and we, we, we drive faster, we drive more, we, we're just not that sharp. Uh, so, and, uh, let, let, let's face it, I mean, the, the, the women are a superior species. They, they're better looking, they're smarter than us, uh, and that's why we do all the heavy lifting. And in the end, they, they outlive us by 10 years. So I think the causal explanation there is, is, is sufficient. Uh, then, uh, on the smoking side, uh, there's overwhelming evidence that smoking causes uh, disease. And that, that if you smoke long enough, you will most likely die because of some smoking-related smoking disease. Uh, but this hasn't always been the case. <laughs> if, you, if you go back into the 1950s, when you still see these ads by the tobacco companies of the beneficial value of smoking, of the health <laughs> values of smoking, and there's this beautiful ad that said, uh, there's a camel ad that said, uh, 
Camel is the brand most preferred by medical doctors. Uh, we've developed beyond that. And then if you look at um, socioeconomic class, uh, again, yeah, uh, there's uh, many studies that show that well-educated people have healthier lifestyles which lead to better health and uh, better uh, mortality. And if, you, if you're wealthy on top of being healthy, you can afford this better lifestyle. Uh, and it's issues like better diet, uh, better living conditions, better working conditions, better access to medical uh, uh, schemes and, and medical provision, doc, doctors. Are. So there's a, a very strong um, or defendable causal explanation for the difference uh, based on uh, socioeconomic class. But then we come to the last criteria. This is the allocation to risk groups. Um, the, the easy one is the age and sex. You just look at the ID book and see you know, what is the age and what is the sex. It's easy to allocate them into the, into the right group. There's this, <laughs> this beautiful story of the um, head office sent out this memo to the branches and said they want uh, a list of all the, all the people working at the branch, uh, neatly broken down by, by age and sex. So they get an answer back from this one branch in, in, the, north, in the northwest. And they said they, they've got this one gentleman who's, who's, who's quite old and he's not that very healthy anymore. But they're happy to report they've got nobody broken down by sex. <laughs> so, but if you look at smoking status, here again it's, it's, it's a binary distinction. Uh, we, we decide, we, uh, tell you you're a smoker or a non-smoker and uh, determine your premiums accordingly. Uh, this is not as clear as the age and sex one because here we've got to uh, rely on the, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, the Berima Fides, the utmost good faith. You've got to trust the smoker or the non-smoker that says he's non-smoking. But you, you do have, we do have, uh, we can send the, the non-smoker with the yellow teeth for a cotinine test to see whether he's been, whether he's been lying through his yellow teeth. Uh, and, um, but but we, we tend to err on the, on the safe side. A smoker, who, a guy who has smoked and who's quitted smoking and he passes the cotinine test, and maybe the damage is done, like Neil, uh, Neil Young's song said. Those of you old enough to know Neil Young. Um, but we tend to err on the safe side and, and, and give, the, give the, the quitted smokers the benefit of the doubt. Um, but then if you come to the socioeconomic class, this is where it gets problematic. Because there's no common standard. There's no common standard in, in the industry of what the socioeconomic uh, uh, subdivision should be. Uh, each insurer has got his own definition of uh, um, education level and of income level, and income levels do not stay, this cannot stay the same forever. They've got to be adjusted occasionally for inflation. Um, and um, there's quite a lot of difficulty uh, around the cutoff levels. Uh, if um, if I'm a category or uh, Class, class three, 
and the cutoff level for class three is 30,000 uh, income, uh, then if I'm just, just be below that 29,000, I'm in class three, and if I'm just over that in, in 20 and 31,000, I'm sadly, sadly in cl class four, which is a small, rather small income difference, and it gives me a 50% discount on, 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 on the rate, which is huge. And this is, this is difficult, this uncertain allocation into, ra into race groups, ach, race groups, into uh, um, socioeconomic groups is a problem. And speaking of race, I mean, we, we, we also run the, the risk because there's a big correlation in South Africa between income and race that this can be seen, which is not, but this can be seen as a covert form of racial discrimination as well. Um, so that is the only place in my analysis where I found that we really have a problem. So uh, age, sex, and smoking, they meet the, the criteria of being fair and uh, justifiable. Socioeconomic class, uh, strong evidence, very strong evidence, but less reliable data. Uh, there's a reasonable causal explanation, but the questionable allocation to risk group. So, in conclusion, uh, I think it's, it's difficult. I couldn't say that my analysis prove, can be used to prove that uh, socioeconomic underwriting is um, fair. Uh, but then we all know that the industry uh, is unlikely to change. The industry can't change on its own if you, um, uh, on the, on the, on the uh, sex discrimination one, uh, you all probably know that the uh, uh, EU, um, I mean, that everybody uh, used to discriminate on, on the basis of sex, male and female. But the EU um, in, 20, in 2012 uh, issued a new regulation that outlawed uh, sexual discrimination. And that is, and, and now, I mean, this is always sort of the, the, the wrong way around. I mean, you used to discriminate in favor of the females. So um, this doesn't really make sense. I mean, they, they say you, you, you know, this is not unfair discrimination. <laughs> But uh, equality, uh, so I'm not sure whether it was a bunch of males who took this decision, but uh, so e equality is, 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 is more important than giving them a discount. So, I mean, I wouldn't have been happy with, if I was a female, I'm not, I'd rather pay less than being treated equal. Um, <laughs> but the industry, the industry on its own wouldn't have changed. But if you, if you get uh, uh, the, the regulation, then the, the industry changed. And, and at the time, there were big papers were written and actuaries were uh, complaining about how this will affect the industry. It didn't affect the industry one bit. They, it was a smooth changeover. But uh, this, the, the sex differentiation is rather small. It's only about a 50% difference in, in, in rates. So now women pay slightly more and men pay slightly, slightly less, and we're very happy about it. Uh, and uh, the industry survived. Uh, maybe uh, after Brexit, uh, Boris will try and do something for, to, to get the women on his side and uh, say that we're going to go back to discrimination in favor of females, but let's wait and see. Um, I think what one can uh, possibly look at 
is a, um, if we want to address the, the problem, is to try and solve it with product development. Uh, first of all, I really think that we need a, a social security uh, basic form of, 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 uh, of cover in the country. That will actually take away the class one uh, in the socioeconomic uh, 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 distinction that we have, the, the, the people without matric. Uh, and and it will make the whole um, discrimination be less prominent than that. Um, I think the insurance industry can also, uh, rather than have uh, discrete um, uh, cut-off points uh, income levels, uh, like four or five discrete income levels, uh, have, it, have a continuous one, uh, which will make the, 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 the changes uh, less, um, or the, the problem at the border of the change uh, less um, uh, objectionable. Uh, or one can have a, a, a policy where everybody pays the same higher price for the first 50,000 rand of cover, and as your uh, sum assured increases, you pay lower and lower rates, so that if you end up with being a, paying a million rand of cover, then you don't have to pay that much for the, for the uh, initial 50,000. So there will, be prob there will be ways around it. We can decide whether we want to do something about it or whether we're going to lie low and hope, no, hope <laughs> nobody complains about this, which has been uh, going on for the, uh, well, ever, for the last few decades. Uh, maybe we're lucky. Maybe we survive. And I think then the last conclusion that, that I can draw from this, or what I've learned out of this, is that um, the moral theory of contractualism is a very useful tool to try and resolve issues like this. I would strongly, I'd strongly recommend it. It's definitely much more useful than utilitarianism. And then we come to the last slide, which the speaker normally likes best, and quite often the, the, the audience as well. Thank you. Thank you, Flanchois. Um, so we've got time for a couple of questions. So if you can just uh, raise your hand just to indicate if anybody has a question. We've got one question there at the back of the room. And we've got three hands up there and one hand to the right as well. Hi, Francho. My name is Bjorn. I'm from Jazz. Firstly, I just want to commend you on the, the topic. It takes courage to unpack this and a, a good methodical um, analysis. Okay. Um, as you may know, we underwrite annuitants. Um, so that, of course, means the risk is the opposite and the challenges may be too. Just want to hear your comments then um, specifically on socioeconomic underwriting and some of the ethical questions you raised there for normal underwriting, whether you believe that applies to annuity underwriting too. Uh, annuity underwriting, oh, yeah. Um, I suppose it, it does, um, that you should give um, better annuities to um, to people with higher, higher mortality risk. But in, in, in South Africa, whereas in this previous session that I attended, I was told that about 90% of, uh, of annuities are uh, living annuities. It's really not an issue. I mean, nobody actually 
buys <laughs> uh, guaranteed annuities anymore. So I don't think there, there'll, there'll be enough uh, market pressure to actually introduce that distinction, and I don't think somebody who really wants to complain about that can just, you can just tell them, well, you don't have to take a living, or you don't have to, to buy a guaranteed annuity, you can take a living annuity. So uh, I don't think it'll ever be an issue, even if it is unfair, slightly. Uh, Rob Thompson. Thank you, Pancho. Um I'd like to take issue on the a matter of reasonable causal explana explanation with regard to class. I think uh, you gave the proximal causes, um, but you didn't explain how that those uh, derive from class. Um, for example, class, you, you define class in terms of education, which could reflect the, the wealth of your parents. And similarly, the wealth of the parents could be affecting the, um, the, the direct proximal causes that you listed. So that they, it's not directly causation. Both are caused by a prior um, effect. I don't know whether I'm making myself clear. So you've got, um, you've got three possible sources of causation. The one is education, which you call class. The second is the effects that you mentioned. And the third is something that is causing both lots of, of, of A and B, if you like. Um, so it's not causal. Um, the class concept is not causal. There's no causal, no necessary causal relationship between um, the, those effects. I'm not sure that I, I'm, I'm not sure that I quite understand the the argument. Um, uh, I mean, the, obviously, there, there may be uh, different factors at play as well, apart from from income and uh, and education. Um, I think even to, to, to say that the income and education are really strong causal effects is, is, can also be pushing it. One can, one can uh, because you, <laughs> to, to prove that, you, 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 they, they do studies and they show correlation against, between, between income and, uh, and, and health issues. So uh, it's, it's very difficult, it is difficult to prove cause. Uh, so I, I think what I, what I, what I would um, suggest is that I think there's, there's a, there can be a sufficiently strong argument made that there is actual, it's not like the, the, not like the stalks in Norway. I mean, the, 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 you, you can bring up arguments in favor of um, saying that this is why there is, uh, there is, a, there is a correlation between, between the, the, um, the cause and the effect. Uh, whereas, I mean, if you if you take, I've read papers uh, uh, that specifically look at, at the relationship between mortality and race, uh, and the strong correlation uh, in the one paper that I saw, but uh, I can't even remember which country that was. It's in the in the U.S. But um, all the correlation was was related again down to to income. Uh, and, and uh, which is a which is a much stronger 
factor than just saying, well, there's, there's a correlation between race and mortality. So I don't think it's a 100% answer, but I think it's as good as it gets. Sorry, we, we, we are out of time, so let's take one closing question, and um, then we'll have to break for, uh, break, break for refreshments. Hi, Francois. John Devich from Old Mutual. Um, I think you can find another principle to, to add to your three that would strengthen your rejection of class as a fair discriminating factor. If you think about age and gender, people have no choice about their age and their gender and it happens equally to everyone. You had a 50% chance of your gender and age hits everyone at the same rate. Smoking is something that you choose, but overwhelmingly in South Africa, your class is something that has been imposed on you by a system, by someone else. And I think there's a principle there about, about choice that, that you can explore that to, to say, because my class has been imposed on me, it's not fair to discriminate against me because of my class. And I think if you work something around there, you, you would be able to strengthen your rejection of class. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, agree, I agree with that. There's a paper that I read uh, around about 1994, just at, at, as democracy it does. The, uh, there was an um, ESSA committee which also added, which was instructed to look at, at this specific issue. And they they brought in this issue of of, of the fact of the factors that you that you have a, that you can actually affect your by like smoking because you you can choose to smoke or non-smoke and therefore it's it's okay to discriminate, um, uh, but if you don't, uh, then they made the same point. I agree. Thank you. Um, thank you. Thank you very much, Francois. Um, please join me in thanking Francois for a very insightful talk, and uh, clearly there was a lot of questions, so thanks for that as well. And just to add to that, I understand Francois is going to be doing another postgraduate diploma next year, so all the best for that. We hope that uh, that is just as successful. Thank you very much.